that's true These mediocre blues everything is mediocre Is it in my head? You really think it's cool Hello, hello Welcome to another Hometown Daily News show This is for November 26, 2022 Let's get going Hello Yes, that's right I am Mayor Watt. That is hometown.com. Go over there, sign up, become a member, a citizen, if you will, of hometown. And there you can get news that's categorized into six main categories like create news, education, entertainment, social, and technology. And then in that is about 50 or so. Sometimes they're online, sometimes I take them offline for work. That is the job of the mayor, making sure that the town is operational. All of its ducks in a row. I'm working on the back end of hometown right now. It will change significantly, probably around January 1st. And by significantly, I mean a completely different uh, front news stream. Uh, Much more dynamic. We're getting there. We'll see if it works. That said, let's get into today's news. The very first article is over in the Hatch Ideas. My music was really loud, so I'll listen to that again later and see if it was really loud. My monitor was okay, but it looked like it was really loud for y'all. At any rate, in the Hatch Ideas channel is um, how Liquid Death's 40-year-old founder turned the dumbest name and a Facebook post into $700 million water brand. Liquid Death CEO and founder Mike Cesario spent years figuring out how to make water cool. Now his brand is valued at $700 million. Um, I'll be honest, I read some of this article. It's by Tom Huddleston, Huddleston Jr. and Zachary Green of Zachary Green News. I'm not sure why I highlighted that, but it's over at CNBC is where it was uh, first posted. Uh, I have a little snippet and that's it, right? So you're going to have to go over and read more of this article, but the nuts and bolts of it is that uh, they had the idea back in 2017, but it was uh, some public money um, through a grant. Let me find it real quick. So although it had been around, uh, the seed of the idea was in 2009. This is what I tell people that if they start early, they might be able to capitalize on it sooner than if they just wait, 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 never do anything, but they should capitalize on it a little bit at a time and see if they can make some movement. So 2009, they come up with the idea, uh, the Vans Warped Tour. Then in 2014, Cesario was working on a public service or on, yeah, on a public service ad campaign about the health risks of sugary drinks. His idea said doing a canned water that was sort of geared as a stunt to poke fun at energy drinks. The client didn't like it, but Cesario kept tinkering with the concept. This is kind of what I do. <laughs> I come up with ideas and then people take them. Um, yeah, so it's, it's quite interesting that, um, they were doing exactly what I was doing, but eight years ago they had this idea and then they said, you know what, 
let's see if we can apply for some money. And uh, they actually spent some of their own money making an ad and doing some marketing, but it was basically just to hype the product. Not, it wasn't a product at that time. It was just a 3D print. Um, and then in uh, January of 2019, they got a $1.6 million seed funding round from Science Ventures. And the rest is history. I mean, they they didn't put their own money. Well, they put some of their own money in, but this, this seed funding is really uh, what made it happen. Let me do something real quick. And... Um, so let's see here. I'm not sure who all. Yeah, I'm not sure who all is in this. But yeah, I'll, I'll do some more due diligence on this. But at any rate, you know, they got some money from investors, um, from Science Ventures in particular, and off they went. And today it says here that Liquid Death has more than 250,000 followers on Facebook and 1.4 million on Instagram, which is probably part and parcel to the Facebook. Um, number of followers, eh, you're in Facebook and you're in Instagram, you're basically following the same thing. In 2020, the brand expanded into Whole Foods and then into uh, 7-Eleven and Publix, and now they're pretty much everywhere. 60,000 retail locations nationwide, selling it. Two bucks a piece, $45 million last year. How about that? What do you think? Do you think that um, you can do that? If you're an entrepreneur, if you have a that little entrepreneurial spirit in you, you want to be your own boss, you want to work long hours, you want to work on weekends and holidays and pretty much always, <laughs> you have to be passionate about your product. I take it this person is pretty passionate about water. A hydro homie, if there ever was one. Liquid Death comes in different flavors, still and sparkling. 40 year old founder started the idea probably in their late 20s <laughs> um, and then realized it in 2019, right when the pandemic started crushing souls. Not bad. That's what you do. You pursue it little bit by little bit. Maybe you can make some ground. Let's move on. The next article is in the Hatch Ideas channel. Death of the Doorbuster. Black Friday shatters online shopping record with more than $9 billion in sales as in-store participation wanes. Yeah, the, the title of this episode, by the way, is from Black Friday door bluster to stolen gold and more news. Could have said that at the beginning, but I wanted to get into the news. So Black Friday online sales reached a record high of 9.12 billion, according to Adobe Analytics. I'm not sure how accurate that ultimate will ultimately will end up being. Meanwhile, brick and mortar traffic appears to decline with the reports of empty stores and parking lots around the country. Adobe said online sales growth was driven by increased use of buy now, pay later options, which is horrible. Um, you, you really shouldn't do that unless you know you've got money in the can that can uh, pay for it uh, if need be. You don't want this lingering until you cannot pay it. The days of pushing and shoving a score of discounted flat screen TV on Black Friday may be over, but Americans instead are turning to e-commerce with growing excitement. Agreed. 
Nobody wants to go out. Why should they? They can get everything online and delivered. Not bad. So Black Friday shoppers shattered the online sales record, reaching one point or nine point one two billion, up from two point three, or it says up from two point three percent in twenty twenty one. It's probably up two point one three. Sorry, two point three percent since twenty twenty one. This article is over at Business Insider. Did I say where that? Yeah, I did. I say I said where the last one was. The the um, the death of the doorbuster article is over at businessinsider.com. Bethany Byron is the author. And again, they have the same uh, statement as the snippet. Th- these are the highlights from the article that Black Friday online sales reached 9.12 billion. Brick and mortar traffic declined. Adobe says online sales growth was driven by an increased use of uh, buy now, pay later options. And uh, they go into greater detail. I don't know how profound the information from Adobe Analytics is because it seems like it's a, to me, it's not the well-known solution um, for ad tracking, but you know, maybe, maybe they've got it right. And we'll, we'll be watching numbers from other uh, news agencies to see if those numbers, you know, align with what everybody else is observing. I haven't taken a look yet. Um, I think Monday is when I'll start looking at uh, Black Friday numbers because everything until it's analyzed properly is kind of a guess. So Adobe's findings showed e-commerce growth was driven largely by shoppers turning to the flexibility of buy now, pay later options like Klarna and Afterpay as they navigate record high inflation. Because what you want is a debt spread over a long period of time in a changing economic environment where you don't know where tomorrow's percentage is going to be. Now, it may not affect that pay now or buy now, pay later dynamic, but everything else around it increasing in price puts pressure on that buy now, pay later prospect. So unless you got it, you know, well in hand, you could be looking at something you can't pay for later because everything else is taking food off the table. Looking ahead, Adobe predicts additional growth on Cyber Monday, still the biggest online shopping event of the season with a forecast of 34.8 billion in online sales, up 2.8% from last year. Yeah, I'm looking to get a new computer, so mine is old, 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 even though I used to swap it out all the time. Stop doing that. At any rate, the next article is in the Hedge Ideas channel. Uh, They reviewed 187, sorry, 100. They reviewed 587 resumes to help people who were laid off. And here are their best tips on how to build one that stands out along with the best examples. Uh, This article is over at Business Insider. Eugene Hayden is who put the article together. Um, They are a senior knowledge analyst at Boston Consulting Group. They reviewed hundreds of resumes in 49 hours to help people who were impacted by layoffs. Hayden recommended uh, following five rules to significantly increase your chances of landing your dream job. So let's get into it. you can learn more about it, the minutia of it, uh, by going over and reading the article. They posted on LinkedIn and they got nearly 600 resumes. 
Their average work week is usually 40 to 50 hours at the time. In addition to their full-time job, they were working on a master's degree in engineering at University of Toronto. So briefly calculated that they'd uh, at least five minutes to review each resume and share their feedback. And for 587 resumes, that totals at least 49 hours of productive time. And the only way to fit that amount of information into their agenda was to cancel all of their side activities on the weekends. So the typical resume included three parts, a 20 second look at the resume, a list of issues and inconsistencies that could be improved and suggestions on how to further improve the resume with examples and templates. And they've created over 480 versions of their own resume for tech and management consulting companies and learned many lessons. So start with your contact details. That's pretty obvious. Um, they talk about the minutia in here. So um, definitely go over and look at it. But keep in mind contact information. Yeah, you want it to be um, a composite of any way to get in touch with you without overwhelming the header of the of your CV. You don't want to just plow everything into there and how you have a YouTube channel that um, caters to keg stands, although there probably is a great one that has a whole bunch of people following it. But needless to say, you want to keep it concise. Unless the job is about, you know, doing keg stands and uh, recording them for YouTube. You want to read the room and apply it properly. Write a brief summary statement. Yeah, that's pretty true why you want to work there, what you are, um, you know, how you got there, something really quick, um, something that categorizes who you are in some way that they can attach to. It's basically a hook about your personality and what you are. Um, they sit here and say, uh, after a summary statement, you should continue with your professional experience, not skills, put your education on top for internships. Otherwise move your education to the bottom. Depends on what you are looking for. Use active verbs describing achievements, not processes. So use action verbs like managed, led, spearheaded, co-founded, developed, created, implemented, etc. Things where you are the one that's taking action. Um, make your achievements measurable by using absolute values, percentages, dollars, anything other, any other quantifiable information. Because uh, qualify means that they're going to have to interpret what you are saying or doing what I just said is not in this article. Um, integrate your tech skills into your experience. And they say, see your, my business insider article on how to do it. They have a link to that article. So I would suggest going over there. Um, but yeah, any, anything where, and this is quite fascinating because I, I deal in a field where tech isn't necessarily important uh, to the people that are, uh, run in the show, I suppose. And, um, I have to explain that tech matters, context matters, um, understanding society matters. It's pretty important to merge basically your understanding of business technology and society altogether. Um, but at any rate, they say integrate your tech skills into your experience and show a way of how to do it. Quite fascinating, actually. Um, this is something that I tell people, but not necessarily everybody does. 
add leadership experience or volunteer experience if applicable. So share, share more personal achievements, not titles or responsibilities. Um, and if you need extra space, reduce the number of bullet points, but don't use another page unless you have less than 50% of the text on it. Um, you, you don't want basically, a, an, an abandoned orphaned, uh, topic anywhere. Um, if they have to turn to a single page and all it has is a little tidbit of whatever on it, then you've basically, uh, shown how ineffective, inefficient, um, you are not necessarily, um, that you just overwhelmed one whole page when you could have been more concise elsewhere. It says, uh, your resume should fit on one page if you have less than seven to 10 years of experience and that their rule of thumb is add one extra page for each seven to 10 years of experience. One applicant shared with them an eight page resume, and this was not what recruiters and hiring managers want to see. No, correct. You, they don't really care about what you did uh, other than probably the last 10 years. And when you do a full background check, then you can play that game and put all, everything on it. But unless it has absolute relevance to everything that you are doing you're maybe doing a ceo even then you chop off the things that aren't relevant to your existence and if there's a big gap you just explain it oh i worked at this place but it doesn't have relevance to here or there or whatever at least that's how it is uh, for me um so it says here here are some good examples for resumes for mba students um, for graduate and graduate student for undergraduate and graduate students with less than three years of experience they have an example of it for professionals with three to seven years and for seven plus years i think it's a neat article um, if you're out there looking for a gig and a lot of people are um, go and check out that article again it's um, the they say i in the article's title but it says i reviewed 587 resumes to help people who were laid off. Here are my best tips on how to build one that stands out along with the best examples. That is a hell of a title, but online you can pretty much write an essay as a title. Um, the next article is uh, in the Hatch Ideas channel. Uh, again, 36 high paying jobs for people who don't like stress. Who really likes stress? Well, some people actually get a charge out of being stressed by things. Madison Hoff is the author of this over at businessinsider.com. And it says here, there are many jobs that are both well-paid and offer a relaxing environment, work environment. Uh, they looked at jobs that pay at least $75,000 annually and that have a relatively low stress uh, work situation. And here are 36 that, of the jobs that were ranked from most to least stressful and by average annual wage in the case of a tie. So farmers and ranchers, environmental scientists and specialists, technical writers. I don't know about that one. That one seems stressed, particularly if you're in a high volume readership environment, people get a little, I don't know, aggressive about their tech reading. Civil engineers, that can be stressful depending on the employer financial examiners again that can be pretty stressful it says importance of stress tolerance 69 i don't know what that really means let's see here i'm gonna scroll back up and look yeah they don't say what that actually means maybe out of 100 
So tech writers, civil engineers, financial examiners, art directors, database architects. No, that can be pretty stressful. Although you can pretty much put the hammer down and slow down. I, I used to work with somebody that when you needed something fast, they slowed down. I mean, they were, they became very sloth like, um, and they worked in database stuff, secondary philosophy and religion teachers. <laughs> All right. Ship engineers. They make a hundred thousand dollars a year have a stress tolerance of 68. I still don't know what that means. Geoscientists. Good, good luck getting that job. Let's see here. Petroleum engineers. Yeah, they might be chill. You just have to get a PhD to get a job. Agricultural engineers, agents and business managers of artists, performers, and athletes. <laughs> right. Orthodontists. Nope. But the, 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 uh, I don't know how <laughs> that doesn't seem very chill. Anyway, the amount of salary jumps to $267,000. Um, the previous one was $116,000, but it bounces all over the place based on the importance of stress tolerance. Post-secondary education teachers. Yeah. Average annual salary, $77,000. Computer hardware engineers. Yeah, you have to get certifications all the time. Uh, number 19 is computer and information research scientists. That can be pretty stressful, particularly with a demanding employer. Post-secondary geography teachers. They make $88,000. Yeah, I don't know about that. Environmental engineers epidemiologists could be a little stressed out. I can't believe that they only make $87,000 a year. Statisticians make $100,000 a year. Let's scroll on down to number one. I'm curious. Should I reveal number one? Mathematicians, $112,000. Importance of stress tolerance, 56%. One of the things I seem to notice about this is that it's mostly educators. Um, that I see there's a, there's a lot, at least to me, soil and plant scientists and physicists. Most of these end up at some point teaching. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. Okay. Let's move on to the next article. And if you're in my chat, welcome. Uh, say hi. If you're interested in saying hi you can lurk all you want i don't know who all is actually in here because it never really tells me um buckle in for a brutal free fall in home prices and u.s housing is in a massive bubble experts say here's how bad jeremy siegel paul krugman and five others think it could get um i have a dilemma with this because i just don't see it um i see that there's going to be downward pressure because of the fed but that's just going to be Pent up spending. This is an article over at Business Insider by Zara Tayeb. And um, yeah, they, they basically say home sales have fallen for eight months and prices are dropping, but economists say worse is to come. The housing market is cratering as the Fed's rapid interest rate hikes and mortgage costs soaring. Yeah, that's the actual mortgage. And that is exactly what its intent was, is basically price out anybody who could have afforded it at a reasonable rate. 3% would have been just fine. 2.5% would have been just fine. 
anywhere in between somewhere around you know the the cost of inflation the increase of uh, you know cost of living three percent fine but the interest rates are seven eight percent i was offered a credit card when i was purchasing purchasing something in a retail store where it was 30 percent the the interest rate was 30 percent annual interest rate that's ridiculous i mean it's gargantuanly high it's predatory it's greed but some people will do it let's move on the next article is in the hatch ideas channel elon musk jokes that the simpsons predicted that he would buy twitter in an episode that aired in 2015 elon musk posted a picture on saturday joking that the simpsons predicted that he would buy twitter lisa simpson stands with a birdhouse that reads home tweet home in an episode that featured musk musk uh, acquired twitter in october 27th uh, for 44 billion dollars seven years after the episode aired i think that's some serious shoehorning their observation into this is just happenstance but i I do have to say it seems to be endemic of the mental gymnastics that some people have to do to make meaning of stuff. Um, so Sam Tabaharidi is the author of this over at business insider. And here is Musk hand on his head, pulling back his hair implants saying, right. He did have a hair implants. If you look at his, historical pictures the dude was had less hair than me anyway he's holding back his hair implants and saying did i just tweet that yes yes you did musk acquired twitter in uh, october for 44 billion dollars and has since basically set it ablaze kicking everybody out that could be kicked out and asking some people to come back if they can come back if they're willing to come back if they're willing to wonder if their next week is actually going to be under full employment or not really anyway it seems unsurprising that musk has drawn attention to an episode that one critic described as more like a love letter to musk than a proper simpsons episode that's a quote from the article the Musk Who Fell to Earth episode aired in January 2015 and saw Musk and Homer Simpson collaborating on a project to revolutionize Springfield's nuclear plant. Mr. Burns, the owner of the power plant, wants to get rid of Musk after the inventor goes too far. What? I don't know if that's really a love letter as much as apropos. Let's move on to the next article. I'm going to rifle through these really fast. Make it a short day. Um, the next article is in the mobile channel. The excitement around esports is growing, but where are the profits? Traditional sports owners who invested in competitive video gaming say the money isn't flowing in as quickly as they had expected. Well, that's it is the the newest sport for crying out loud. It, it's not going to be rolling in the dough as much. Um, I don't know. It, it's not like it's not like football. It's my football, but it's not other people's. Um, but traditional sports owners who invested in competitive video gaming say the money isn't flowing in as quickly as they had expected, and it's probably because 
when these people got into traditional sports, it was well-groomed, well-developed. The infrastructure was massive. A South Korean esports team called DRX won the recent League of Legends World Championship at the Chase Center in San Francisco. That's what that picture is right there. And uh, Kellen Browning, who attended while reporting the story, uh, wrote this article over at NewYorkTimes.com. And it says, um, let's see, fans roared their approval, fireworks flare, the winners embraced, and the losers sobbed into their keyboards. Oh. Executives from Riot Games, League of Legends publisher, presented DRX with diamond rings sponsored by Mercedes, celebrating the pinnacle of the professional video game scene for League of Legends, at least. Sure. So, obviously, there's some major investment, but it may not be a return on your investment, the likes of which you might be used to with a conventional team. Again, you got to think of this as angel investing, seed round. You're, we're building up the the number of people that are going to be watching this and playing this. It's as though major esports events sell out buildings like the Chase Center and attract tens of millions of viewers in China. Ticket costs are less than for traditional sports games and far fewer Americans are watching esports than the 12.4 million who watched the 2022 NBA Finals or the 17 million the NFL averaged for 2021 regular season games. A difference that means less interest from advertisers. Yeah. But it didn't start as, you know, 17 million people for crying out loud. It has to grow. And there are people that are sitting there trying to marginalize sports. I mean, I know people that are you know, in my sphere of influence that are poo-pooing the idea of sports. Yeah. Esports, I should say. Um, but regular sports, you know, the fans of regular, you know, non e sports, they get nothing out of this other than entertainment. So the people who watch esports, actually, not only do they get to watch and then play the games, but they get to interact with greater consistency with the players, and the players are engaged. Uh, to a higher degree at least from my witnessing my anecdotal perspective you know the, the fans of players get to actually interact um, with a greater level because it's more intimate because it's a smaller uh, population a at this point it will grow i think it will grow but people have to take that risk you know it, it <laughs> smaller Smaller groups holding esports contests, typically high schools, colleges, um, putting together teams and and really mounting support for it. Um, I think it would be great, but it takes a little bit of dedication, and um, particularly in colleges, there the people are only there for two or four years. Or they're there less and they transfer somewhere else um, or they get headhunted and, and work and, and then they're gone. Um, it's a real it's a real issue. That's why you need to have something extracurricular, which means that the school doesn't have any control over it at all. Really, um, they're there just to support the efforts of whatever that 
group is doing. So, yeah, I, I just don't think that you're going to get a lot of money returned because there isn't a lot of people that are embracing it just yet. Um, because nobody is investing, you know, tens of millions in a consortium of NFL investors. It's not like that. Um, some people, I hope, you know, will end up watching esports to a greater degree. I certainly love the idea of a more committed global esports community. Let's move on to the next article. Uh, Frontier Airlines has replaced its telephone customer service line with an online chat to cut costs. That's right. Frontier Airlines has scrapped its telephone customer service line. The airline has switched to a, a chat to give information as efficiently as possible. Frontier said that this month that a chat service reduced negotiation and dealt with more cases. So how did that work out? Uh, this is an article over at businessinsider.com by Ryan Hogue. And um, I don't, let's see if they have some numbers here. Travel Noir reported earlier this week that Frontier's service line wasn't working and gave callers an automated message directing them to other means of communication. And at Frontier, we offer the lowest fares in the industry by operating our airline as efficiently as possible. Um, we want our customers to be able to operate efficiently as well. This, uh, which is why we uh, make it easy to find what you need at flyfrontier.com or on our mobile app. Uh, the automated message says, so we're going to push you over to a chat supporting higher labor rates in the voice channel. And uh, we're limited to this one-to-one -one interaction. He said, adding that a chat agent could handle three queries at once. Think about the most sort of obscure question a customer might ask, and that would take a call center agent many, many minutes to research and find uh, an answer to. The chat bot can answer that very quickly. Oh, so it's a chat bot. Let's see here. An online chat is not a chat bot, though, but they say that it's a chat bot that they turned to. So basically, the, it's an expert system that maybe will manage all of this, but over time, expert systems become much more knowledgeable because they're flooded with inquiry. And then either somebody says, this is what the answer is, or uh, it's already programmed into the bot and away you go. So, so do the jobs though. Now, instead of, you know, 11 people handling uh, 11 people at a time, you've got 11 people handling 33 people at a time. And instead of expanding operations, you know, it, efficient doesn't mean, uh, so I put quotes, I'll put them in quotes again. Efficiency doesn't translate into those workers making more money. <laughs> it just doesn't. It allows them to keep their job because they have a power imbalance. The employer doesn't go, hey, look, I'm making 33% more money or 66% more money because you're shifting 66% more traffic through. In this case, it's actually three times as many people through. No, they're not going to get, you know, a bump in their pay. I really doubt it. 
anyway, the next article, and um, I've only got two more left, is a million dollars worth of Celtic gold. I was going to say Celtic gold because I just wanted to throw in Boston, Boston Celtics. But anyway, the Celtic gold was stolen from a German museum during a mysterious power outage. I thought that was really, I, the moment that I saw this title, I said, I got to talk about it. I got to, I got to read about it. Over a million dollars worth of ancient gold was stolen from a museum in Germany. Bavaria, Bavarian state police have said on Thursday night, 483 coins were stolen when unknown thieves broke into the Celtic Roman museum in, um, Munching? Really? I must be pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, anyway, the coins were dating back to 100 BC and when were unearthed in 1999. I'm, I think it's monking monkey. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. <laughs> I used to live in Germany. I've lost my German understanding of pronunciation. My gosh. Anyway. So now they're investigating this. Uh, Bethany Dawson over at businessinsider.com wrote this article. Bavaria's Minister for Science and Art, Marcus Bloom, said the raid was a catastrophe. So this mysterious power outage takes place, huh? And then some gold. This is this is the kind of stuff that you read about in murder mysteries or or heists, you know, Ocean's Eleven. This is like o Ocean's German. German Oceans? Bavarian State Criminal Police Office is now investigating how quote-unquote strangers managed to gain access to the regional hub and sever fiber optic cables the night the museum was hit, according to BR24. Wow. Fascinating. Whoever steals art damages our culture. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. This is sounding very ominous. Speaking to BR, Bloom said, it's clear that you don't simply march into a museum and take this treasure with you. It's highly secured, and as such, there's a suspicion that we're rather dealing with a case of organized crime. I'm telling you, it's Ocean's Eleven. Just look for minis. You'll find them. Next article is over in the Mobile Channel. How satellites, radar, and drones are tracking meteorites and aiding Earth's asteroid defense. I think it's all about aliens. On July 31st, 2013, a constellation of U.S. defense drones saw a streak of light over South Australia as a rock from outer space burned through Earth's atmosphere on its way to crash into the ground below. Dear God. The impact created an explosion equivalent to about 220 tons of TNT more than 1,500 kilometers away in Tasmania. The bang was heard by detectors normally used to listen for extremely low-frequency sounds from illegal tests of nuclear weapons. These were two excellent indications that there were, there should be a patch of ground covered in meteorites somewhere north of Port Augusta. But how can we track them down? So now they have satellites in space that are tracking it, ground data that's tracking it, weather radar that's tracking it, and then the search. Thankfully, Andy found the first meteorite within 10 minutes of looking. In the following two hours, his team found nine more. The technique of finding meteorites with weather radar, radars, I figured that the plural of radar is radar, but one radar, two radar? Apparently it's one fish, two fishes. 
was pioneered by their colleague, Mark Fries in the U.S. However, this is the first time it's been used uh, outside the U.S. NEXRAD radar network. When it comes to monitoring airspace, the U.S. has more powerful and more densely packed tech than anyone else, according to this article. Pretty cool. So they've found they found 44 meteorites weighing a bit over four kilograms in total. Together, they form what they call a strewn field. Yes. Because it shattered and splattered all over the place. Next article and the last one for today, dozens of times drought, ice melt, and storm surge unearthed unusual and unsettling discoveries this year. This is in the Hatch Ideas channel uh, because it's coming from Business Insider. And today it seems like a lot of Business Insider news came in. This year, human-caused climate change has exposed a spate of unusual discoveries among the Earth. Unearthed finds are old sites, ancient artifacts, rare fossils, and even human remains. Here in the States, we found them in a lake as the water dropped. Scientists have said things will continue to emerge as rising global temperatures affect the weather. Yeah, this is the big thing. The formerly sunken boat sits upright with its stern stuck in the mud along the shoreline in Lake Mead. And there have been humans, well, deceased humans found among the unearthed fossil or the finds are old sites that I can deal with. I like that, but I'm not really interested in finding human remains. Of course, if they're missing, they should be found, but, um, Scientists have said things will continue to emerge. How do you feel about that? Global warming is going to keep on wiping out water. Let's see here. Shrinking lakes and rivers unearthed long submerged secrets around the world. Are they going to talk about some of it? Researchers estimate the fossilized American lion jaw pictured in October went extinct about 11,000 years ago. It's about the time of the last ice age. Not just Lake Mead, some locations along the Mississippi River, a major shipping route, reported their lowest water levels in 10 years, Noah said in a most recent climate report. The village of Acerado in Spain's northwestern Galicia region re-emerged after a drought drained a dam on the Spanish-Portuguese border in Spain's Villanova De Sao, I guess it is, um, in the Catalonia region, plummeting water levels in a reservoir exposed in an 11th century Romanesque church, the AP reported. Look at that. Dropped so much that the whole thing is exposed. Pretty amazing. And the rubble therein. Well, there's a whole lot more over here. So go and check it out over at Business Insider. And uh, we'll just call it a day i'm i've gone through all of the articles if you're interested in any of these you can go over to showbot and uh, to get to hometown's showbot you can just type in hometown.showbot.tv uh, i am uh, gonna do some work here on hometown uh, between now and tomorrow i'll be here 6 p.m eastern every day until well till future notice and um Maybe we'll be expanding, but that's it for today. About 10 articles go over to hometown.showbot.tv. 
Uh, you can also just type in exclamation point showbot, and that'll give you the link that will take you over to where you can vote up articles that I've talked about today. If you are interested in a particular topic, then uh, vote it up and I will keep an eye out for uh, various bits of news that might fall in line with, um, you know, viewers interests. And I certainly have a bunch of them, so I would not be surprised by as many or more um, from viewers. I've got six main categories and 50 channels and all of those channels I intend to bring to Twitch. I hope to bring five more starting in January. Um, what they are is a secret, but one of them is going to be Reality Hacker uh, because I've got this is my second VR headset uh, with modern equipment. I used to do VR research when I was younger. Um, uh, primarily in, uh, phobia and pain management and education. And so it was a lot of fun then, but a nightmare. And now I can be fully mobile, no wires. My headset is right there. So right, right there. Um, but we'll get it all rolling here, uh, in the coming weeks and, and start streaming a game, probably Zenith, which is a MMO in vr form uh, along with uh, half-life alex and a bunch of other stuff i've got planned so let's hang out i'll see you tomorrow 6 p.m eastern bye bye mm -hmm.